social class was far more important than your sectarian identity. So all my family friends, my parents' friends had intermarriages. It was a geographical identity rather than a political identity. Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. It's been more than 20 years since the United States invaded Iraq. This week on Babel, I'm joined by the Iraqi journalist Raith Abdullahad. We talk about the war's lingering legacies, as well as the ways that working closely with leading journalists on the battlefield, like our mutual friend Anthony Shadid, shaped his career and his views on journalism. Then I talk about the legacies of sectarianism in Iraq and Lebanon with Natasha Hall and Leah Hickert, the newest member of the Middle East program team. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Raith Abdullahad is an award-winning journalist for The Guardian newspaper in the UK. He is the author of a recent and remarkable book, A Stranger in Your Own City, Travel in the Middle East's Long War. Raith, welcome to Babel. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You went from being a draft evader in Saddam Hussein's Iraq to being a translator and fixer for journalists and then a journalist yourself. What was surprising to you about that journey? Well, it's still surprising to me. I mean, to be honest with you, I do not know why I followed the American convoy that entered Baghdad on the 9th of April, 2003. I don't know why I stood in the square watching the statue falling. And I really don't know what made me next day walk through American checkpoints claiming that I was a British journalist, kind of lie my way, basically, through American checkpoints all the way to Saddam's palace. I really don't know. I mean, probably because I grew up in Iraq all my life. I lived in Iraq all my life. And I was always wanted to answer the questions. Why did Saddam do what he did? Why our life was shaped the way it was shaped. I mean, I saw war, the first war when I was five or six, then another war, then the invasion of Kuwait, then American sanctions, then all these wars. So probably the simple answer is curiosity. And it's been the same journey ever since. I've been struck that when you appear in English language outlets, you're generally identified as an Iraqi journalist. But in Arabic outlets, you're identified as a British journalist of Iraqi origin. Is that intentional? Look, I'm Iraqi. I only have an Iraqi passport. I don't have any other passport. But I think it is a matter that in Iraqi media, they would not understand why would the Iraqi journalist only write in English and not write in Arabic. So it must be a British of Iraqi origin. The answer to that is it is an intentional. I don't write in Arabic because I would like to continue to write. And had I been writing in Arabic, I don't think I would have survived the last two decades of war reporting in Iraq because a lot of my colleagues and friends and other Arab journalists who wrote in Arabic were targeted and were killed or silenced. So writing in English is in a way a kind of a protection. One of the consistent themes in your book, you come back to it time and time again, is that the Iraq you grew up in 
never seemed sectarian to you and that it was really the US-led war that turned Iraq into a heavily sectarian place. Why do you think, with this sense of curiosity, why do you think that sectarian framing resonated so much with the US government? Because it's a very simple narrative. It's really simple. This is post kind of the 90s, the wars in Yugoslavia. So it's a very simple narrative. Now, that narrative of Bosnian, Muslim, Serbs, Kowak did not fit into Iraq. But since the mid-90s, a group of Iraqi exiles, or, you know, politicians, whatever you want to call Led them. Led by Ahmed Chalabi, who I certainly met in Washington in the 1990s. Chalabi and others, they framed the Saddam regime as a sectarian regime because that was the way they could market toppling the regime. Now, Saddam was evil. He was a dictator. He could topple him for so many reasons. But was the regime, was the Iraq that I grew up as a young high school student, university student, sectarian? Was it framed as a sectarian country? No. Are there Sunnis and Shia? Yes. Do they have differences? Yes. Had been there conflicts 1,500 years ago? Yes. But what happened after 2003, the civil war, the sectarian civil war that took place in Iraq was not written in the skies. There could have been different outcomes. One of the things that surprised me is there are episodes in the book and you, you seem constantly surprised that people turned out to be of a different sect than you had sort of assumed. Because again, in the Baghdad where I grew up, a son of a lower middle class family, family members working for the government, other not working for the government. Social class was far more important than your sectarian identity. So all my family friends, my parents' friends had intermarriages. It was a geographical identity rather than a political identity. What mattered more is the social class, the tribe, the region, the wealth, of course, these are the things that mattered in the Iraq of the 80s and 90s. As you traveled more in the country, did you come to feel that, well, maybe in the South, there was a sense of solidarity against a Sunni regime that really nobody felt aligned to, and as the South was oppressed, that there was a, more of a sectarian identity in parts of the country? Or is that never really true? Of course, part of it is true. But two things the Americans did when they invaded Iraq. First is create this narrative of a victimhood of oppressed and an oppressor. So if Saddam was an oppressor and the oppressed were, according to the narrative of Shia from the South, then by associations, all the Sunnis are oppressors. It's kind of the denazifications again, but it's not a political party. You point at 30, 40% of the population and you say, you're all been associated into Saddam's crime. Now, Saddam would never tolerate any opposition, being Sunni or Shia, being Islamist or communist or secular. So everyone was targeted by the regime oppressive security forces. But when you come and within few months, you put a whole section of the population into a corner and you point a finger on them and you say, you've been guilty of Saddam's crimes. What do you think they will do? Another thing, Shia and Kurds had their own identities evolved throughout centuries. You know, the Sunnis never saw themselves as Sunnis. 
The Sunnis saw themselves as tribesmen from Dermadi, merchants from Mosul, middle class of Baghdad, farmers from Diyala. Suddenly, you put them all in a corner, you tell them, you're guilty, now go and come back with a political system. And that led to the civil war. Another consistent theme in your book, besides sectarianism and the introduction of sectarianism after the war, is the issue of accountability in your sense that nobody's ever really held accountable in Iraq right now. What would accountability look like in Iraq? Knowing our history, I mean, look, we still don't know how many Iraqis died. I mean, there are estimations, but we don't know how many Iraqis died because of the invasion. We don't know how many Iraqis died in the civil war. We don't know how many Iraqis died in the Battle of Mosul. We don't know how many civilians died. And if we don't know how many people died, how can we have accountability? In March this year, I was in Baghdad and I was doing a story about this kind of militia commander whose name kind of you know, struck fear in the heart of every Iraqi. He was synonymous with the civil war. His militiamen kidnapped and killed thousands. This guy is portraying himself now as a philanthropist who goes around the head of the month, uh, distributing salaries, giving a frozen chicken to orphans and widows. That guy managed to do this because there is no accountability. The same thing with the Iraqi parliament or the Iraqi government. There are people there who have blood on their hands. And certainly, we don't talk about it. If we don't know the history, we will keep repeating the same stories again and again. As an Iraqi, what do you think accountability for the United States would look like? Again, I do not want Nuremberg. I just want someone to come out and say, this is what we did. I don't want even the word sorry. I just want you to acknowledge the impact of the war. Those who remember the Iraq war 20 years ago still kind of will portray themselves as this is the right decision or it's kind of the fault was in the planning, the post-war planning. No, the whole thing was a disaster that caused so much pain and suffering to the United States as well as in Iraq. I want to pivot from talking about Iraq to talking about the way that you did your job reporting on Iraq. You and I were both friends with the late Washington Post and New York Times reporter, Anthony Shadid. Anthony, I always thought, had a different approach to the reporting he did. How did you see him doing his job? How did you see it differently from the way other Western reporters worked in Iraq? And how did that shape the way you saw your own role as a reporter in Iraq? I'm very lucky that when I started my journalism, I started as a translator working with or beside some of the greatest reporters, James Smith of The Guardian, Anthony Shida of The Washington Post. It was like going to the best school of journalism ever. What struck me about Anthony Shida is his smile. He was constantly smiling. He never shouted. He was never angry. He was never holding his pen and pointing at someone and telling him, Tell me what truly happened. He always had this very, very kind and gentle smile. And I think that what struck me most is how soft-spoken he was in the worst of situations. I mean, I've seen Anthony Shidi in the war in Lebanon in 2006, and he was the calmest, coolest person. And I think that's what I learned from him. You've gone from reporting on war zones in your own country to reporting from war zones in other countries. Afghanistan, Syria, elsewhere. Arguably, you've gone from being somebody who is a fixer and translator to somebody who uses fixers 
and translators. How does your background in that role influence the way you do your work? So we spoke about the amazing journalists, but then there are other journalists who are an example of what you shouldn't do when you are in a foreign country. I won't ask for a lot of names, but I wouldn't mind one or two. I will not mention any. But I mean, those people who would kind of march into a country and demand answers and they feel the right, they've been doing an amazing service to humanity by being there. So those are the people who are in my mind whenever I am traveling as an outsider. And I try to always remember not to make the same mistakes. Again, this is the Anthony Schwitt School of Journalism, which is be humble, talk softly, and try to listen and understand. And I mean, there was a lot of debate since there are war about local journalism versus foreign journalists and who can do the job better. And I think it's the language. It doesn't matter if you grow up in, I don't know where, as long as you can understand. So what distinguished Anthony Shalib, of course, was the fact that he spoke Arabic, that he spent years and years and years learning Arabic. So you can see him in the alleyways of Niger conversing with clerics and ayatollahs and militiamen because he could talk to them in their own language. What always struck me about Anthony, and I know he worked in Arabic, I always heard his Arabic as being American accented. But what struck me about Anthony is he had a remarkable capacity for empathy. And the way he wrote about Iraq in his book, Night Draws Near, which was done from his Washington Post reporting, was caring deeply not about the thing that everybody knew to care about, but caring deeply about all the people who were watching, caring deeply about impacts, caring deeply about ordinary people who were affected by the main action, whose feelings and actions would otherwise be completely lost to history. And it was his commitment to that empathy and making the reader empathetic that, in my mind, was what really distinguished him. I never really saw him working very much in Arabic, but I saw him bringing that empathy to Western audiences when almost nobody else was able to or was interested in doing that. And one of the things that I think kind of distinguishes Anthony Shreve also is, you know, by 2008, 9, 11, there was a severe fatigue of reporting from Iraq and reporting. I myself started seeing all the car bombs in Baghdad as one movie reel, where kind of scenes got mixed and something. What Anthony managed to do is give dignity. So you read his work from 2011, and you see how filled with emotions, filled with lines. And that's what distinguishes Anthony. There was no fatigue. There was no laziness in his writing. He also told me several times that it was time for him to leave Iraq behind. As you know, he went and rebuilt a family home in Lebanon that he wrote about in his book, House of Stone, that was published posthumously. But he felt that it was just too much to constantly do Iraq. Do you feel the same way? I mean, we're talking to you from Istanbul. Is there a limit to how much Iraq you can take? And do Iraqis that you know who are patriotic to the country, still feel, but I can't live there. I remember an evening in Beirut, I don't know which year it was, 2008, 2009, sometime. 
because I was back on a trip to, I remember Somalia or Afghanistan. I was just like young and happy with myself that I did this trip. And I remember Anthony Shadi telling me, you know, you can travel whatever you want, you know, but at the end of the day, you have to write about Iraq. And at that time, it struck me, why are you telling me this? I'm very happy. I'm traveling around the world. And here we are, 20 years later, my book was about Iraq. Zayeth Ablahad is the author of a remarkable book, A Stranger in Your Own City, Travels in the Middle East's Long War. Zayeth, thank you so much for joining us on Babel. Throughout the discussion, Zayeth touched upon a very striking and very sobering idea, which is that sectarianism in Iraq was not inevitable. How does Iraq's experience with sectarianism compare to other states in the region, such as Lebanon? Well, I think in many ways the Iraq experience implicitly built off of Lebanon. What is striking to me and was striking to me at the time was that American officials didn't seem aware of the problems of Lebanon. There was this idea that Americans had in the early 2000s, similar to what the French had in the 1930s, and beyond when Lebanon was created, that if you give a place to all of the groups and you apportion it based on their relative size, then you ensure that everybody gets represented. But what you end up doing is you end up empowering sectarian leaders, dividing the population, preventing people from having larger identities. And in Iraq, you have lots of cross-cutting identities, whether they're regional, whether they're tribal. And there are a lot of tribes in Iraq that are part Sunni and part Shia. But there's something about the way the U.S. rushed in to putting in a sectarian system in Iraq, partly because some Shia sectarian leaders wanted it that way, because they thought it would empower them. And what you ended up is rather than knitting the country together, you ended up tearing the country apart. Rather than having the sectarian diversity of the country be a source of strength, it's become a source of persistent weakness. We've seen that in Lebanon, and now we're seeing it take shape in Iraq after the U.S. accelerated sectarianism in the country. I mean, as someone who's lived in sort of all of the countries across this band of sort of conflict and, and crisis that we see from Iraq to Lebanon, Lebanon has always struck me as one of the most, if not the most, deeply sectarian country in the region. And what made me very sad about Iraq and having worked on it, you know, for the past 20 years is that this was not a deeply sectarian country. Neither was Syria. And so to see those sort of sectarian narratives be inflamed often by outside forces, sometimes Iraqis, but also sometimes outside forces like Iran and Gulf countries, and the same goes for Syria as well, was quite devastating. Because they, as John said, they weren't necessarily sectarian. There was a lot of cross-cutting people. And so they couldn't find a home in the new Iraq. I interviewed hundreds, if not thousands, of Iraqis for resettlement. And oftentimes I would interview, you know, these kids who were born of Shia Sunni parents. And what part of town were they going to live in anymore? What I found really striking about Raith's comments was he said, you know, the, the divisions were really much more about class than about sect. What he felt 
was the foundational structure of his lived experience was completely absent from the calculations of American officials who were thinking about Iraq. And the reality of the situation is that the time the U.S. invaded Iraq, all of the people who had written books in English about Iraq, I knew every single one of them, and they all could have fit around my dining room table. We had no actual knowledge of the country, partly because of U.S. sanctions, partly because of Saddam Hussein, and we went into a place with no knowledge of its context. We relied on expatriates to tell us, and they brought us a concept which, in Reithat Blahad's telling, was completely divorced from his lived experience in that country. The United States invasion institutionalized sectarianism in Iraq. How has the reorganization of Iraq's political system along ethno-religious lines influenced its contemporary geopolitical relationships? I kind of alluded to this earlier, but you see just the, the deep, deep entrenchment of Iranian influence throughout the country in Iraq now that wasn't obviously present during Saddam Hussein's days to the point where it's, it's almost difficult for even Gulf countries, even if they wanted to have more influence in the country, to do so. And you have political leaders that are, are benefiting from that as well. So I think, you know, it's, it's really hard to untangle or disentangle Iraq present day away from that geopolitical influence, those larger geopolitical influences that you're discussing. And it's interesting that Iran's tools of influence are so different from America's tools of influence, but they both have tools of influence. I mean, they're both very influential in the way politics work. They have very different avenues, they have very different assets, but in many ways, Iraqi politics are undergirded by this competition between the U.S. and Iran, and unfortunately overlaid by profound corruption which was partly enabled by the U.S. presence and is certainly abetted by Iran, partly because this is one of the tools of Iranian influence. But everybody is part of it. Nick Pelham wrote a, a fascinating article in The Economist about how billions of dollars disappeared from a bank in Iraq from government accounts. And as far as he can figure out, everybody was implicated. The pro-Iranian parties, the anti-Iranian parties, as long as everybody got a share, they were able to steal from the country. And to me, that's one of the great tragedies of Iraq, is that we didn't create a democratic system. We didn't create a system with tremendous freedom, but we contributed to a system where elites are taking the wealth of the country and the country is increasingly corrupt and immiserated. I think it also showed the re limitations to the way U.S. influence was projected in Iraq, but I've seen it in many other contexts as well. Afghanistan is another one, but also just countries around the world. And that is that money does not solve all problems. I think Robert Worth said something like $320 billion had actually fled Iraq over the years. And Iran is different in the sense that there is money attached to its influence, but it's also, it's quiet at first. It has boots on the ground, and there's really no replacement for that kind of commitment to a country. And we're seeing it in Syria, and we've seen it in Lebanon over the years. 
And it's really hard to just throw money at an issue and really counter that over the long term. And Iran has an intimacy with Iraq that the U.S. just can't replicate. So when I was talking to people in Iraq about Iran's influence, they said Iran has allies everywhere in all the sectarian groups, in all the tribal constituencies. It's down to police commanders. Iran has an ability to operate in Iraq that's really integrated into the country. And the way the U.S. operates is really at a much higher level. It's much more at the wholesale level. Iran operates at the retail level, and it's very hard to uproot. And this is one of the things that Qasem Soleimani built over decades in the country and built extremely effectively. John, earlier you mentioned that there was a limited knowledge of Iraq in the United States prior to the invasion. Many architects of the Iraq War expected Iraq to leave authoritarianism behind, just like other Eastern European states in the post-Soviet era. Why was this expectation so wrong? I think that there were things that were special about Eastern Europe, Central Europe, that were not appreciated, that, that there was I think a huge sense among the people who were the advocates of this war that there was an inevitability to democracy that was incorrect. I think they underestimated the role that allocative states have in suppressing a genuine economy where, where people have demands on the state. And instead, Iraq, like many petrostates, it's a distributive economy where the state is handing down resources to the population. This is one of the changes that happened as Iraq gained in oil wealth, is it became increasingly centralized around Baghdad and not localized among, you know, with local merchant families and, and large parts of the electorate and, and everything else. The other piece of this, and it's a little bit strange to think about it this way, but everybody understood that Eastern Europe was going to be a slog. We had been working on it for many years. People thought we'd be working on it for many years. Everything was long-term. When we went into Iraq, the notion was, this is gonna be easy. We'll get rid of the dirty dozen, the worst people. People in the US were brought in on 90-day personal service contracts. There was a sense that people had that we wouldn't have to invest. That it was all gonna be a quick hit. You take away Saddam Hussein, and the Democrats would win, small d Democrats. And I think the complexity of the problems, our lack of understanding, we didn't have large emigrate communities who understood Iraq, and the nature of the way the economy worked all militated against the kinds of outcomes the US wanted, added to the fact that there's a way in which military economies can be distortive. A lot of money going around, it's, it's easy to to spend money and pay people off, all those kinds of things. We didn't have that distorting effect. We were an occupier with the military having the largest number of people. That wasn't part of the experience in Eastern Europe. And so it really, there wasn't a very good parallel between the two, but there was a perception that exactly what we had done in Eastern Europe was what we could and would do in Iraq. Our success was inevitable. People would choose liberty and freedom. Just a lack of humility about our ability to shape the decisions of people who think 
that the outcomes of the next year or two will determine their future, their children's future, and their grandchildren's future. And under those circumstances, people make very different decisions than somebody who's on a 90-day personal service contract from the United States flying in, flying out, and thinking about the rest of their career. I think there are two things I would say to this. The first, and Raith talks about this in the book, but this notion that the U.S. invaded, and John alluded to this too, without a plan. There were no basic services in Iraq right after the invasion. There was no water. There was no wastewater treatment. There was no waste management. There was no electricity. I mean, I think people couldn't believe this. And if you were trying to get people on board for your new vision, I think eliminating basic services for survival was probably not the way to do it. And then you go to the debathification plan, which is basically to eliminate all technocrats from the previous government and basically send a bunch of unemployed, armed, angry men into the streets. And I would be angry too, probably. (laughs) The other thing I would say, though, about Eastern Europe is, you know, the oligarchs of the past are not going to just easily let go of power, right? especially when they have sort of a powerful ally in Russia and other states. And I think the same essentially goes for Iraq. With that vacuum of no services and no politicians, you did have external voices sort of filling the vacuum and injecting this political violence, this sectarian narrative into Iraq that hadn't been there before. And once you ignite that, it's really hard to get rid of, as most Lebanese probably know, because you have one massacre and then you have another massacre And before you know it, people really buy into it because it's a lived experience. And so, you know, you have a situation where you have people that aren't getting basic services from the government. And so, you know, that sectarian boss, that's the guy that gets you what you need. And I think sort of disentangling that for Iraq's future is going to be necessary, but really incredibly difficult. I agree. Thank you both very much for joining me. Thank you, and congratulations on your first Tabletop in Babel. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.